Always good to be with you. Thanks for the welcome. Again, we feel very much at home uh, amongst you here in Airdrie. And uh, it's always good just to renew fellowship with you. Our Bible reading is in Matthew's Gospel, and we'll read the, at the end of chapter 20 and then into chapter 21. So it's Matthew chapter 20 and starting at verse 29. This is the Word of God. Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and they are, are passing through Jericho. Verse 29 says, As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them, told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen. May God bless to us that reading from his precious word. Well, as Valerie has been reminding us, at the Holiday Bible Club this week, the kids have been having a superhero celebration. Don't know how many superheroes you can think of. Uh, Superman is probably the one that I first think about, but there are lots of others uh, these days. Lots of superheroes doing incredible things. But of course, for us, for Christian people, as Valerie said, the greatest superhero of all is the Lord Jesus Christ. He did some amazing things, some incredible things, 
and uh, he taught some world-changing principles. When you think of how long ago that was that Jesus came to earth and uh, his teaching is still being remembered and shared all around the world and his person is being brought to people through the Holy Spirit to change lives powerfully. But who was he, really? Who was he? This is the big question. And the passage that we are reading from uh, tells us something about it. It's a question that all of Jerusalem asked back then in New Testament times. And all of the world has asked the question since. For these 2,000 years, the figure of Jesus has haunted the thinking of mankind. And even those who totally reject him are at least usually forced, if they're honest, to think seriously about him. And even Richard Dawkins, the confirmed atheist, in his book, The God Delusion, has to admit that Jesus was surely one of the great ethical innovators of history. Of course, as C.S. Lewis pointed out many years ago, that option as to who Jesus is is not actually open to us to describe him as the, one of the greatest ethical innovators of history, to describe him as a great moral teacher. C.S. Lewis said, it's on the screen, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing, says C.S. Lewis, we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So who is this? The disciples had asked the very same question when they were out on the lake in the middle of a storm. And Jesus calmed the storm with a word. And Mark chapter 4 41 tells us the disciples were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? That's the big question posed for us here in Matthew 21 and verse 10. And uh, we start to get some answers because first of all, in the passage that comes at the end of chapter 20, we find a very revealing incident. Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, but they're not there yet. They're leaving Jericho, and a large crowd is gathered around Jesus trying to listen 
to what he's saying. That was very common for rabbis, for teachers at this time to teach in that way as they're walking along. Most journeys were done on foot. As they're walking along, then their disciples are gathering around them. People who are interested in what they say are gathering around them and walk with them, and they teach along the way. So there's a crowd gathered around Jesus trying to listen to what he's saying. And two blind men by the roadside are begging and hearing the commotion. They inquire what's going on. And when they learn that it's Jesus who is passing by, they start shouting, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And they addressed Jesus as the son of David. Very significant that they should have called him that because that was the standard title for the Messiah amongst the Jews. The Messiah that they were waiting for was the son of David. And so here's the first answer to the question, who is this? He's the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. Now, it's not the whole answer, as Jesus himself makes clear later, but it's a start to an answer. But just for a moment, let's not leave these blind beggars too quickly because there are some important things for us to note here. First of all, these guys seized the moment, didn't they? They seized the moment. Jesus was passing by. He could easily have passed by them, but they created a commotion. They started shouting. There was no way they were going to let him pass. There was no way they were going to let this moment pass them by. This was it. I wonder if you've ever felt that. This, this is it. This is a God moment for me. Have you ever sensed that? I'm sure, I'm sure you will have at some time or another. Sometimes it's much more marked than other times. This is God. This is God speaking. This is a God moment. That's what these guys felt. This is the moment for us. We need to seize it. So they refused to be discouraged. When the crowd told them to be quiet, to shut up, to quieten down because they wanted to hear Jesus, they, they refused to let the crowd curb their enthusiasm for this moment. And, you know, that happens for us, I'm sure. You've found that happening to you at some time or another as well. Other people want to curb your enthusiasm. You're getting, you're getting too caught up in this Christianity business. You're getting too enthusiastic about worship. You're getting too enthusiastic about listening to God. You need to calm down a wee bit, folks. People often say that to us. Uh, and maybe particularly you've heard that as maybe you've shared some testimony about what the Lord means to you and what he's been doing in your life. Just keep that to yourself. Religion's a private thing. People try to curb our enthusiasm, but these men refused to be discouraged. They kept shouting. And they exercised imperfect faith. They didn't know everything about Jesus. They knew enough to make them want to have him touch their lives. There was lots more for them still to discover, but they had enough faith to call on Jesus. Lord, have mercy on us. Just enough faith 
I've maybe asked you before, if you had to cross a stream of water, would you rather have strong faith in a weak plank of wood, or would you rather have weak faith in a strong plank of wood? I know which I would rather have. Uh, I would rather have the weak faith in the strong plank of wood, just enough faith to get me onto that bridge. That's all I need. And Jesus is the strong plank of wood. He is the bridge over troubled water. They exercised imperfect faith. Their theology was certainly not perfect, but they were reaching out to Jesus, and they made a big request. Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? He had a good idea what they wanted to do, wanted him to do. But he wanted to hear the request from their own lips. He wanted them to recognize it and to verbalize their need at that moment. Maybe Jesus is asking you that kind of question. Right now, maybe he's asking it. What do you want me to do for you? Do you have an answer for the Lord if he asks you that question? What do you want me to do for you? What is the thing that you really want just now? What is the thing you really need in your life? What about this church? What's your prayer for this church? What do you want Jesus to do for this church? What's the desire of your heart? right now. If Jesus were to ask you that question, what would you say? These men had absolutely no doubt. Lord, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them. We find that often in the Gospels. You read that phrase often about Jesus having compassion on people. See, you see, it's no empty response you get from Jesus. He's not just passing you off quickly. He's not just going through the motions as he passes by. He felt for these guys. Probably had never met them before, but he had compassion on them. He felt for them in their need and in their situation. And he touched their eyes and they were healed immediately. They saw him for themselves. Imagine that. Jesus was virtually the first thing, the first person that these guys saw. And they followed him. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah, the Christ, the healer who brings sight to the blind. This is a very revealing incident there at the end of Matthew 20. And then we move into 21 and we, we see a very dramatic entrance Jesus and the disciples are now close to Jerusalem, sends two of them to collect a donkey and its foal in a nearby village. He tells them exactly what they'll find. He assures them that if anyone tries to stop them, they're simply to say that the master needs them. And that'll be enough. Now, either Jesus is exercising the gift of knowledge at this point, which undoubtedly he had, no question about that. You remember the incident with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus knew everything about her, though he had never met her before. That's the gift of knowledge being exercised. 
by the Lord who has all of the gifts of the Spirit. Now, that may have been what was happening here. But more likely, Jesus had simply prepared beforehand for this event. And uh, a follower was ready with the donkey and the colt. But in either case, whatever was behind it, it is a prophetic symbol. It's a prophetic symbol. It wasn't uncommon amongst prophets in the Old Testament, particularly if they felt that words were of no avail to grab people's attention by some dramatic action. Jeremiah did it all the time. If you read through some of the chapters of Jeremiah, he's always engaged in prophetic actions. Elijah, you remember, arranged the contest on Mount Carmel with the priests and prophets of Baal. He encouraged them to shout to their God to burn up the sacrifice that had been prepared. And these priests and prophets of Baal, the foreign gods, uh, cried out all day to their God. They cut themselves. Nothing happened. And then Elijah got the sacrifice drenched in water, and he called to God to send the fire. And the fire came and licked up the water and the dust and received the sacrifice. This was a hugely dramatic incident. It was absolutely high drama, and no one missed the meaning and the significance of it. Prophetic action. And Matthew is very clear that a messianic prophecy is being fulfilled here as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And it was a dramatic prophecy. He records it for us. From, it's from Zechariah chapter 9. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is enacting that prophecy. He's coming as the king, but he's not coming on a war horse. He's coming on a colt, which Mark incidentally tells us had never been ridden before, uh, underlining the, the sacredness of this occasion. And though the crowds may not have immediately appreciated the fulfillment of the prophecy, they certainly welcomed Jesus as King Messiah. They spread their garments on the ground in front of him. They waved palm branches. They threw the branches onto the ground. They, they, they hailed him as the son of David, exactly the messianic title which the beggars had given to him just shortly before. And they cry, Hosanna! which means save now. It's a cry for help, which people in distress called to their king or their God. Save us. And Jesus accepts this welcome, this recognition from the crowd. Now, that's very different from his attitude on previous occasions to the adulation of the crowd. Several times in the gospel, he tells people who've been healed to keep quiet about it, not to go broadcasting it. And early in his ministry, in Mark chapter 1, a leper is healed, and Jesus says, see that you don't tell this to anyone. It wasn't time for these things to be broadcast. In John chapter 6, the people actually want to make him king. 
But Jesus would have none of it. He got away from that crowd. His hour had not yet come. But now it has come. This is the moment. This is the time. He has set his face steadfastly for Jerusalem. He knows what is ahead. He comes into the city as Messiah, king, riding on a donkey. It's a prophetic symbol. But it's also a very provocative action. Whether Jesus intended it as such or not, he certainly must have known that the Jewish authorities who already hated him, who already were out for his blood, would not take kindly to such an arrival in Jerusalem with such adulation from the crowds. And that's exactly, of course, how it proved to be. As this week progresses, the opposition from the Jewish leaders grows stronger and stronger until finally Jesus is crucified. But all of this reminds us of his courage. Jesus was not coming to Jerusalem to please men, but to do the will of his Father. It was no easy path for him. The struggle in Gethsemane a few days later was absolutely real and genuine. It was a real struggle that Jesus had at that point. There he is sweating blood with his struggle. Eventually he cries out, not my will, but yours be done. He refused to take the shortcuts to power and glory. He refused to take the easier way out that Satan often presented to him. And even with that incident that I mentioned a moment ago in John chapter 6, when the crowd wanted to make him king, he refused to be pressed into their mold. He had come for something different. And that took great courage on Jesus' part. And you see, that's the pressure on us very often these days, just to go with the crowd, just to keep our head down below the parapet, to take the easy way out, to avoid the hassle of discipleship. So how did Jesus stay on course all through those years of ministry, through those times when people wanted to make him their king? How did he stay on course on what God wanted him to do? Well, that same passage in John chapter 6, verse 15 tells us that after that business with the crowd wanting to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He needed to get alone with God when the pressure was on, when the temptation to take the easy way was on. He needed to get alone with God. As soon as he could, he went into the Father's presence. He shut out the voices of the crowd and responded to the gentle tug of the Father's will. And you and I will have to do the same. Maybe every day, but certainly frequently, we'll have to do the same if we're going to stay on course in our walk 
with God. To get alone with him. But here, in Matthew 21, Jesus accepts the adulation of the crowd because his hour has come. It was time for the people to acknowledge him as king. But he is going to be a very different king. That's there as well. Jesus wants people to see that while he is their rightful king, his reign is one of peace and service. So he comes riding on the foal of a donkey. He's not the political messiah they were expecting. He's not coming riding on a war horse. He's not coming to overthrow their human enemies. He's coming to rule over the hearts and lives of men and women. His kingdom will not be a place guarded by armies and weaponry. His kingdom will be an upside-down kingdom, a reversal of the world's accepted values, actually to bring them back the right way up. His kingdom, his reign, will exist wherever men and women acknowledge him as Lord. He reigns as king in their hearts. Do you remember it was Princess Diana's wish just to be a queen in people's hearts? That's what she wanted. I remember a long time ago hearing a story uh, about the minister in Glasgow Cathedral. This is many years ago because the city was having a visit from the then king and there was to be a service in the cathedral. And the minister who was going to conduct the service was very nervous about it all after all doing this before royalty. And he intended in his opening prayer to say, Almighty God, in whose hand are the hearts of kings. But in his nervousness, he got it all jumbled up and he blurted out, Almighty God, in whose hand is the king of hearts. Yeah, you'll get there eventually. <laughs> anyway, it went on. That's actually what Jesus intended to be, to be the king in our hearts, the one in whose hands we place our lives. But of course, he's much more than that. He's much more than my personal king. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the author of all creation. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the Son of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. All that and more and more we're told in Hebrews chapter 1 about Jesus. So as we look at this passage here in Matthew 21, who is this? And think about the claim that Jesus is making in these verses. We have to see that there is a very necessary response from us a very necessary response. The crowds made it that day. The city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. He is a prophet. He brings words from God. It's another good answer, but it's not the sufficient answer. Who is this? The blind beggars, the crowd pressing into Jerusalem say, this is the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, coming in the name of the Lord, it's still not the sufficient answer. Jesus had asked his disciples the same question not so long before. What are people saying about me? 
They replied, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the response we need to be making to a very personal question. Who do you say I am? Never mind what other people are saying. Interestingly, Saul of Tarsus put the same question to Jesus after he'd been stopped in his tracks on the Damascus Road. Who are you, Lord? And then comes the second question from Saul's lips. What do you want me to do? And uh, maybe that's the question we all need to be asking the Lord. Once we know him, once we know who he is, once we are in that personal relationship with him, what do you want me to do? See, Jesus will ask that question of you. What do you want him to do? But we need to ask the same question to him. Lord, what do you want me to do? So who is this? He is Jesus, the man, fully human, so that he could be tired, sleeping in the stern of the boat in the midst of a storm. He could be weary at the well in Samaria, desperate for a drink. He could be lonely. Will you also go away, he says to his disciples. He, he could be disappointed. Could you not watch with me for one hour? He could be grief-stricken, weeping at the grave of Lazarus. This is Jesus, the man. He has taken on human flesh. But he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one sent from God. He is God, the Son, our Savior. Paul tells us God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So we all need to make our own response to this most important of all questions. Who is Jesus? What's your answer? This is Jesus Christ, God's Son, my Savior, my Lord, my King. Do you know him like that? Not, this is not theoretical theology. We're talking about a personal relationship, a personal response from a heart that loves him and knows that he first loved us and gave himself to be our savior. We're going to listen to just a short excerpt from a sermon by an American preacher an African-American preacher, S.M. Lockridge. It's, uh, it's a well-known excerpt. Some of you will have seen it and heard it before. He was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego for nearly 40 years. He's been dead quite a number of years now. But just worship the Lord as we listen uh, to this. <laughs> 